Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. couple of announcements. One, uh, those of you that helped with the breakfast on Wednesday, you prayed, you made some food, whatever that was, thanks so much. I think it was the best one that we've done so far. We had 14 or 15 churches. Uh, the mayor came and so did the superintendent, and they both were able to share some of the things that they see are happening in our city, and we're able to pray with them. So it was, it was a great time, uh, and we are thankful for all of you that helped with that. Uh, second, uh, last week, uh, we talked. Matt Nelson talked about our small groups. This is kind of our small group season, and so uh, I would encourage you to find one. So there's a room right here outside the doors, and there's a wall with all of the small groups that we've got uh, coming up for both short-term ones for the next few weeks and long-term ones that will last the whole school year. Grab information on the groups that look the most interesting to you. Contact those leaders. If you need some help, you can reach out to Matt, Matt at StonebridgeMarietta.org. Uh, that would be good. We really want to see everybody plugging into community. Last, if you're a reader, a book, Sit, Walk, Stand by a guy named Watchman Nee. Super short, great overview of Ephesians. So as we walk through Ephesians, if you're looking for something to maybe help you tie the whole thing together, the book's probably, I don't know, maybe 75 pages. We've got a couple of them outside in the library. You can order it off of Amazon, either a hard copy or the Kindle. Um, it's, again, easy read, but he does a good job of a, like a broad brush. Here are the three major verbs in Ephesians. There's sit. We begin with what Jesus has done for us, resting in that walk once we, once we know what Jesus has done for us, then we walk that out in our life and stand. That's how we uh, fight against the enemy. Uh, everything in the book I don't agree with, but overall really good. And again, an easy read. It can help give you um, a, a, an overview of Ephesians, maybe hold the whole thing together. We're going kind of slow, and that book can help keep everything, again, kind of tied together. So today, uh, we'll keep plugging away at Ephesians, remind you where we've been, opens with this hymn or psalm of praise. Paul is saying we're thanking God for all of the spiritual blessings that he's given us in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms is that spiritual world that's not way up there. It's, it's right here. We just can't see it. It's invisible uh, that we've been predestined, or that, excuse me, that we've been chosen to be holy and blameless, that we've been predestined to be adopted into God's family. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. God has revealed to us the mystery of his will, which is to unite all things together in Jesus. We've been predestined for the praise of God's glory and that we've been marked. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Those six blessings run all the way through Ephesians. And so as much as we can, we want to keep those in mind as we look at different sections. That's what Paul is saying. This is your inheritance as a as a follower of Jesus. This is what God is giving to you. It's in this spiritual realm, and so sometimes we don't necessarily see it, but it's real. And we want what's going on in that spiritual realm to begin to form and shape what's happening for us here in this visible and material world. Then Paul moves right out of that hymn into a prayer for the church, and he prays the heart of the prayer. Uh, Father, I pray that you give us, the church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so we know you better. It's a prayer that we would grow in our knowledge. Remember, knowledge in the Bible is relational and experiential, not just academic and intellectual, that we would get to know you better. We grow in our knowledge of who you are. And he closes that prayer thinking about power. He says, I pray that you'd know the power that's available to you, this incomparably great power that's available to you 
as a follower of Jesus. And then off of that word power, he applies it to two different uh, groups. He applies it to Jesus, and then he applies it to the church. And that's what we're going to look at today. What is God's power look like exerted in the life of Jesus and exerted in the life of the church? So chapter 1, verse 19 is where we'll start. That power is the same as the mighty strength the Father exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of Jesus who who fills everything in every way. As for you Gentiles, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us Jews also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages the Father might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So there's a comparison there. Power at work in the life of Jesus. Power at work in the church. For Jesus, that power is, exp- is expressed, we'll just call it physically. Jesus is dead, and he's physically raised to life. That's the Easter story. Crucified on Good Friday, raised to life on Easter Sunday. And then he, 40 days later, he ascends bodily into heaven. And so right now, he is seated in this heavenly realm, in this spiritual world, at the right hand of the Father. And then we see a spiritual parallel for the church. The church is also dead spiritually. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And God's power at work in us is raising us to spiritual life and then seating us with Christ in the heavenly realms in the spiritual world. So we'll look at both sides of that comparison. First, Jesus, again, physical for him. Crucified, dead, buried. The third day rises from the grave. And it's an expression of God's power. The Father exerts his power, raises Jesus from the dead. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Paul explains a little bit what that looks like. So he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is a position of authority, and it's a position of honor. And he says there are all these other spiritual beings who are under him. He's far above all of those other spiritual beings. Sometimes when we talk about the spiritual world, we said it's, we think about it in layers, even though it's not way up there and we're way down here. You know, it's, it's here with us. We just can't see it, but just metaphorically, sometimes it's easier to think about it as up there. So we have Jesus who's seated high above all of these other beings, power, authority, rulers, dominion, He's above all of those. Those are other beings that operate in that spiritual world. We don't know tons about them. We know a lot of them are bad. They're evil. They're opposed to God. And we don't know tons about them. But whatever they are, Jesus is above them. He's been seated above those spiritual beings. Side note, I asked you to read Ephesians once a week just because I thought it would be helpful. If you're getting tired, if it's getting boring to you, read Colossians. It's shorter, so bonus. And it's the same material. 
Ephesians and Colossians cover almost the exact same ground, and they really help you understand one another. They use different words to say the same thing. So Ephesians will help you understand Colossians, and Colossians will help you understand Ephesians. And in Colossians, we read, Jesus is he's exalted above all of the rulers, the powers, the authorities. And in Colossians, it says thrones instead of dominion. Same thing. These other spiritual powers. And then Paul says, in any other name you can think of, any name that you would invoke, any name that you could call on. We said we don't know where all Ephesians was read. It was in different cities and towns, and we don't know those cities and towns. But we do know it was read in Ephesus, and there's some things we know about Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of like New York City, not the capital of the area, but the the hub, the center of the area, the region in which it was, Asia Minor, where it was located. And uh, according to some, some guys that study this, there are a lot of gods in Ephesus. They found evidence of 16 different gods that were worshipped in Ephesus. Artemis, she was a Greek goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt. And she, they had a, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. There was a temple to Caesar, who was the highest human leader at the time, the highest political leader. There was a temple to him. There was a temple to a God who, who, would, who helped heal people. There, basically, if you had a need, there was kind of a temple on every corner that you could go to and you could call on the name of one of those gods to help you. So you're coming out of that background. You're a Gentile. You're in Ephesus. You hear the good news of Jesus and yet you're, you're living in this world that is steeped in religion. And again, you got a temple on every corner and you've been raised just saying, well, if I need A, then I go to temple for A. And if I need Z, then I go to the temple for Z. That's what you do. You call on the names of all of these gods that are populating your city. And then Paul says, you don't have to do that anymore. Jesus, he's above all of those. You, whatever name you can think of, he's seated far above all of those other gods. And he's seated far above every other name that you could call on if you're in a point of need in your life. How freeing would that be? We read that the Father has appointed Jesus to be the head of everything. That word head can be tricky. Sometimes it means source and sometimes it means authority. It means both in this case. Jesus is the source of all things. Colossians says everything, visible and invisible, on earth and and in the heavens. It was all made by Jesus and for him. He's the source of all things. All those spiritual powers, he's the source of all of them. And he's also the authority over them. Colossians, he's supreme over everything. So he's both the source and the authority over all of these other names that you could call on, over every other spiritual authority that you can think of. He's before all those things, and he's above all those things. And all of that is for the church. What an interesting phrase, for, on behalf of, for the sake of the church, that's us, his body. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is Jesus. And the Father has appointed him to be that for our sake. He recognizes our weakness. He recognizes our frailty. And he knows. You need some help. So Jesus, he's above all of these other powers and authorities that would wreak havoc in your life. You can trust him. This last phrase is kind of a tricky one. The church, that's his body, the fullness of Jesus who fills everything, who fills all things in every way. Colossians says the Father was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And Jesus says we as the church are his fullness. We're full of him. And as we live our life in this world, we're expressing the reality of who he is 
to others. So that's Jesus. And then Paul transitions and says, what we see of Jesus physically is true of the church spiritually. So we're, we're all Jew and Gentile. Everybody's one or the other. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. We're all deserving of God's wrath. His wrath is his righteous anger poured out towards on sin. All of us deserve to be punished. He says, you Gentiles, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions, that's an intentional misstep. If you think about a path that you're supposed to walk, to transgress is to step outside of that path, to step off the road. The road for us, the law of love, to love God and to love people in the most general sense. When we choose to do something that's unloving, we're transgressing, we're stepping off of that road, moving in a different direction. And Paul says you were dead in those, and we know that, you know yourself. You've done that, I've done that transgress the law of love. I've intentionally moved off of that path. Sin is to miss the mark. I think of a bullseye and the target is Christ's likeness. And every time I don't hit that target in the, 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 the bullseye, I've sinned. I've missed the mark. I'm to be like Jesus in my thoughts and my actions and my attitudes and my reactions and responses. And in the places where I come up short, I've sinned. I've missed the mark. We're dead in our transgressions. We're dead in our sins. It doesn't take long for any of us to recognize, that's me. I've done that. I've stepped off the path of love. I've missed the mark of being like Jesus in all things. He throws in the word disobedience just in case you need another one. Not obeying, doing our own thing versus submitting to the Lord. That's, that's all of us. And then he says, and the Jews, they're not any better. He says, we're, we're living among those who are disobedient. We're all gratifying the desires of our flesh. So we have sin is described as transgression, sins, and disobedience. And then we have our enemies are all listed, the primary enemies of the Christian, the world, which is the system, the attitudes, the, the values of our culture that are contrary to the values and the behaviors in the kingdom of God. The devil is the ruler of this world, the spirit who's at work in those who disbelieve. Our flesh, that's our sin nature, that part of us that even though we've been crucified with Christ, it continues to exert a pull on us, pulling us away from Jesus. Those are our primary enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all wrapped up in those three little verses, and it's a bad picture for us, not, not great. So Paul says about, here's your situation. You're dead in your transgressions and your sins. You're living among people who are disobedient. You're disobedient. You're following the ways of the world. You're following the ways of the devil. You're gratifying the desires of your flesh. So because of all of that, you deserve to be punished. You deserve God's wrath, his righteous anger poured out on sin. And I think, again, in an honest moment, we would all say, guilty. I've done that. I've followed the ways of the world versus the ways of the kingdom of God. I've followed the ways of the devil versus the ways of Jesus. I've gratified my sinful flesh versus choosing the way of the spirit. I've transgressed. I've moved off this path of love. I've missed the mark. I haven't exhibited a Christ-like attitude, behavior, response, reaction. I've been disobedient. I've done what I wanted to do instead of what the Lord's asked me to do. Guilty. I deserve his wrath. But thankfully, there's another verse. 
because of his great love, God, who's rich in mercy, has made us alive in Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. For some of you, that's the only thing you need to think about for the rest of the day. Because of his great love for you, God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus when you were dead in your transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We see some things about salvation there. We see the, the motivation is love because of his great love for you. It's John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. What's behind our rescue, what's behind our deliverance, what's behind our salvation is the great love that God has for us. And we see salvation, it's an expression of mercy and grace. Those are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God withholding from us the judgment that we're due, the punishment that we're due. We deserve death. We just talked about that. We're guilty. We're following the ways of the world. We're following the ways of the devil. We're gratifying the desires of our flesh. We've transgressed. We've sinned. We're disobedient, guilty as charged. The wages of sin is death. We deserve God's wrath. But because he's merciful, he withholds that wrath from us. When we talk about being saved, that's what we mean. We're saved from the wrath of God. We talk about some, we think sometimes, well, I'm saved from hell. What you're saved from is the wrath of God. His righteous anger poured out on your sin. That's what we're saved from. We go beyond that. Grace, it's, it's again the other side of the coin. If mercy is withholding the judgment or the punishment that we're due. Grace is the bestowal or the giving of favor that we don't deserve. So God withholds what we do deserve, his wrath, and he gives us what we don't, which is salvation. It's his love, acceptance into his family, forgiveness, deliverance. We don't deserve any of those things. And yet he gives them to us. We'll talk a little bit more about grace next week when we look at the next section of Ephesians. But for today, just as you're thinking about that one verse, even in the Bible Belt, this seems to be a struggle, maybe even more so than it is in places where Christianity would be new, where it's not something where maybe you've, you've heard a thousand times, God loves you and Jesus died for you. And sometimes that, almost, it, it, that can almost make us callous to the reality of what is being said here. Because of his great love for you, not because you were a nice person or because you were kind or because you were good. Because of his great love for you, not because you were baptized when you were a baby or because you go to church often or because you give 10% or because you read your Bible every day. Because of his great love for you, not because you try really, really, really hard to do the right thing. God who's rich in mercy made you alive in Christ when you're dead in your transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Not it's because of your character that you've been saved or because of your moral effort that you've been saved or because of your diligence to seek even that you've been saved. It's grace. And if we get, there's a part of us, the human part of us, the flesh part of us, I should say, we want to be saved because there's something in us. We hate we hate it if we feel like we owe somebody. We want to pay them back. We want there to be something in us that deserved what we got. It can be difficult to receive a gift for many of us. When it comes to our salvation, that, that's, 
That's the ground that we stand on. Salvation's motivated by the love of God, not by anything in us. And it's a gift that he freely gives. Think about when the last time a dead person contributed anything to you. The answer's never. They just lay there. They can't do anything. We were dead in our sins. And Jesus saved us. The Father raised us to life. We contributed nothing to the process, which is actually great news for us. If salvation wasn't based on the love of God, if it was based on something in us, what happens if that something changes? If salvation was based on the fact that we're a good person, what happens when we have a bad day? If salvation is based on the fact that we're earnestly trying to do our best, what happens when we go through a stretch where we can't or we don't? If salvation is based on things from our past, what happens as we continue to move forward and those things become farther and farther in the, in the distance and have less and less impact on us today? All of those things change. His love doesn't. It's better ground because it's solid. It never changes. If salvation was not a gift, if it was something that we earned, what happens if we didn't earn it today or tomorrow? Or next, what if we didn't work hard enough? What if we didn't do enough good? Could it be taken away that quickly? Better ground, His love and His grace than anything in us and what we've done. We'll talk more about that next week. But that's not all. We're not just raised to life in Christ. We're then seated with Him in the heavenly realms, which is an amazing thing to think about. For some of you, you need to just dwell right there because of his great love for us. God is rich in mercy, made us alive in Jesus when we're dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. For some of you, that's a new truth. You know it here. You've heard it before. You just need it to sink in. You need to begin to live accordingly. But for all of us, I think, tricky. We're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms right now. In this spiritual world, this invisible world that we can't see, we're seated with Jesus. A few years ago, somebody gave me these things. So I'm a man and she gave me dolls. So I got Russian nesting dolls. So they do what you think they do. Well, you probably don't know what they do. So that's what they do. So there's always a smaller one inside. I'm trying to not throw them everywhere. Yeah, smaller one inside a bigger one. And so this is what it means for us to be in Christ. There's a little baby. So you can feel like that sometimes. But if you're in Christ, then wherever he is, you are. So if Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, where does that mean you're seated? The right hand of the Father. How about that? If, if you, according to verse 13... If you've heard the message of the kingdom and you've believed it, then you're in Christ. You're incorporated into Christ. That's what verse 13 of chapter 1 says. So that means wherever Jesus is, you are because you're in him. So if he's seated at the right hand of the Father, then everyone who's in him is also seated at the right hand of the Father. That's your current reality. You would say, no, I'm sitting in a chair 
in a room on the corner of Tower Road and Kennesaw Avenue. That's your physical reality. Your spiritual reality is right now you're seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. There's an interesting story, 1 Kings 18. Dark, dark time for Israel. From the time of Solomon, once he's out of the picture, the kings of Israel are all bad. The, it's, a, it's a steady decline morally and spiritually. In, verse six, in chapter 16, we're introduced to a new king named Ahab, and he's the worst of the bunch at that point. The Bible says that he did more evil than any of those before him, and he did more to provoke the, God's anger than any king before him. You don't want to be the guy who does more to provoke God's anger than anybody else. Bad place to be. But that's Ahab, horrible, horrible man. And he marries Jezebel, who's a horrible, horrible woman. She's the daughter of a priest king from a, a, a nation called the Sidonians who are neighboring to Israel. And they worship a God, a God called Baal, B-A-A-L. He's a storm God. And so when Ahab and Jezebel get married, Jezebel begins to, she introduces Baal worship into Israel. So Ahab builds her a temple to Baal and they begin to worship Baal and they're pushing everybody else to do the same thing. At this point, it doesn't look like people are saying we're not going to worship Yahweh. That's the name of God. We're going to worship Yahweh and Baal. We're going to do both. You're a farmer. You're covering your bases. I'm going to cover, I'm going to worship Yahweh. I'm going to worship this storm God because I needed to rain. If it doesn't rain, I don't eat. Awful time. Idolatry's on the rise. Hard-heartedness is on the rise. Again, Ahab and Jezebel are awful, awful people. And then God raises up a prophet. His name's Elijah. And he says, I want you to tell Ahab it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. So Elijah says that to Ahab. Fast forward to 1 Kings 18. It's been three years. The drought is severe. And God is saying, okay, the people, they've been softened up. They've been broken. We have generations of rebellion and idolatry and hard-heartedness, three years of famine, that'll wake you up. Three years of your storm God not being able to produce rain maybe will help you realize that he's not really all of that and that you need to turn back to me. So Elijah, inspired by God, says we're going to have a contest. Me against the prophets of Baal. There's 450 of them. We're going to meet on Mount Carmel. We're both going to sacrifice a bull whose ever God answers in fire. He's really the Lord. Baal's a storm God, so the idea would be lightning would be an easy thing for him. Fire shouldn't be any problem. So they get together and Elijah says, there's more y'all than there are me, so you go first. So they have their altar and they sacrifice the bull and they start praying and they start dancing and they start yelling and they they're making a, a ruckus, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, trying to get Baal to do something. He doesn't do anything. So at lunchtime, Elijah says, maybe y'all need to try a little harder. He might be sleeping. Maybe he's busy. He could, be, he could be on an errand. You never know. And so in the afternoon, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, they, the, they, they up their intensity. They start slashing themselves with swords so that they bleed. Nothing happens. 3 o'clock, Elijah says, my turn. So he cuts up his bull, he rebuilds the altar that's been neglected, puts the bull on the altar, gets four pitchers of water, dumps them on the bull, four more pitchers, does the same thing. He's dug a trench around the altar just to catch the water. Three times, so he got 12 pitchers of water dumped on this bull. No tricks. That's what he's saying. No tricks. Bull is soaking wet, the altar's soaking wet, the ground's soaking wet. 
we've had these prophets for eight, nine hours acting like crazy people trying to get Baal to do something. He doesn't do anything. Elijah dumps water over his sacrifice and simply prays. God sends down fire, burns up the whole thing. Cow, he burns up the bull, the rocks, licks up the water, whole thing, all gone. I was thinking about us and how many of us, when we think about our relationship with God, we lose sight of the fact that we're in Christ. And so we're seated at the right hand of the Father. We think we're way down here and he's way up here. And so we jump and we hoop and we holler and we every trying to get his attention. We're like a little kid whose dad's ignored him. Look at me. Look at me. I think it breaks his heart. Because he said, no. How hard is it for you to get the attention of the person sitting on your right right now? Unless they've fallen asleep. Not hard, is it? The access that we have in Christ. You can pray passionately. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a heart, a heart posture that says he's way up there and I'm way down here. He's got other things to do. He's busy. There's more important things going on. Maybe if my situation is incredibly dire, if my circumstances are really tragic and desperate, then maybe he'll pay attention. But otherwise, he doesn't see. And he certainly doesn't hear. We're like those prophets of Baal. Causing a, making a, a fuss, a ruckus. Trying to do something. To get our Father in heaven to look at us. And you don't need to do anything. You're seated with Christ in the spiritual world. You're right next to the Father. At his right hand, a place of honor and authority, not because of anything in you, but because you've been incorporated into Jesus. So where he is, you are. So he's in a position of authority and honor. And so are you. It's a great deal. We were talking in our staff meeting and a guy was saying, you know, there's a difference between praying and feeling like you're praying up into outer space versus recognizing you're seated with the Father and you're praying down to the earth. It's just a different posture. The prayers may be the same, but it's a different heart posture that says I'm seated with him right here. I'm seated with him and I'm partnering with him through prayer and what he's doing in the world. I was also thinking about that idea. If you've been seated, if I've been seated with Jesus, we're in him. So we're seated in heavenly places. If all of these other gods, little g, if the powers, the rulers, the authorities, the thrones, the dominions, every other name, if they're all under his feet, then where are they in relationship to you? They're under your feet as well. Again, not necessarily, you haven't done anything. You've just said yes to Jesus, and that puts you in him. And so his victory becomes yours. Colossians 2, he's triumphed over all of those things by the cross. He's made a public spectacle of them. They've all been defeated. I used to, when I used to come home from church and I was growing up, WWF was on wrestling. When the guy wins, what, he puts his foot 
on the guy we've just pinned. That's, he's, he's done all the work. We're just in him. And so we get to enjoy the victory. And yet how much? Like the prophets of Baal, like Israel during 1 Kings 18. How many of us, we want to do Jesus plus something. It's not that we've rejected Jesus. We just want to cover all our bases. This is really important. I got to eat. I need rain. So Yahweh plus Baal, I just got to make sure that I get a crop in. I got mouths to feed. I'm not saying you're not God. I'm just saying I need to, I need some insurance. And we can do the same thing. It's not that we reject Jesus. We just add something else to the mix. And where we live, the two things that we're most tempted to add to the mix are ourself with a capital S and money with a capital M. It's those two things. We're rich by every standard, historically and globally. Everybody in this room. You got food. You can put gas in your car. You got a car. You have more than one pair of shoes. You have more than one shirt. You're rich. You've got air conditioning. You've got relationships if you hit a a rough patch. We're rich. I don't want to live in Haiti. I'm I'm, I'm happy here. But living in, a, in an affluent world, society, we've grown up saying, I'll get it. I'll get it. And over time, what that does, it becomes Jesus plus money. I can get it. I can get it. We live in an individualistic society. We've been taught to be self-reliant. There's pros and cons. One of the cons is when we get pinched we, the first thing we do is look at ourselves. What can I do? How can I get out of this? How can I get through this? What do I have? Jesus plus me. Jesus plus my bank account. I'm, I'm looking down at things that are under my feet and saying, help me. Instead of looking to my left to the father who's right there doesn't he make sense silly when you think about it why would I look down to something that Jesus has already defeated to help me when I'm seated right next to the father who appointed him head over everything anyway let's take a minute and pray we're running out of time this is what I want you to do I just want you to think I don't necessarily want you to do anything else. Bo's going to come back. He's going to sing a song over us. If you know it, you can sing it with him. But I'd really rather you just think. I'd rather you meditate, listen. We need our minds to be renewed and transformed in this area. We see with physical eyes. It's just hard to learn to see with spiritual eyes. There's just not a lot in our world that would help cultivate that spiritual sense. So we're sitting in here and I'm saying you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You're probably like, okay, that's, yeah, what, you know. But if we actually begin to believe that, it changes the way we live. It'll change the way you relate to the Father if you know you're sitting right next to Him. You're not a billion miles away. If you know you can just whisper and He hears you. You don't have to scream and shout. You've got his attention. 
If you know that everything that competes with your loyalty and your affection for Jesus, whether it's money with a capital M, whether it's yourself, whatever those things are, that are under his feet and they're under your feet, they don't have any power over you anymore. Whether they're real or not, they don't have any power over you. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work in our hearts, kids, students, adults, everybody in the room, everybody who's watching online. Would you begin to convince us of the truth that we're in Christ and that means we're seated at your right hand, Father. I do pray for those who wrestle with the whole idea of salvation as a gift. I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, guide them into the truth that it's because of the Father's great love, the Father who's rich in mercy, that we've been made alive in Jesus, even while we were dead in our sins. Salvation is a gift of grace. Would you bring conviction, and maybe you want to pray this, would you bring conviction to any who are trying to earn that which has been freely given to them? Those who are frantic about the state of their own soul versus resting on the work that you've done, Jesus, for us. And for all of us, I think we all, we all need to grow. What does it mean to live from the reality that we're seated at your right hand, Father, this place of honor and this place of authority. So show us, guide us, Holy Spirit. I pray even in these next couple of minutes, guide us more deeply into that truth. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 